Well, by way of introduction, I want to invite you to pray for Michael, Michael Thornhill. Uh, so my, many of you know Michael. He ha, had preached here last summer. Uh, great guy. He was actually here in attendance last week with Shaq. He's a friend of Shaq's, and uh, um, he was planning on preaching here this Sunday. Um, but he's he's battling kind of a, a some, something that could be pretty significant health issue. Uh, um, something might be coming back that he had had dealt with earlier in the year, and. Uh, so he called me Thursday night and just said, like, I, I, I can't commit to this this morning. So I wasn't supposed to be up here. Uh, he, Michael was, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a few weeks off to try to recoup and, and uh, plan for this upcoming, you know, academic year preaching schedule. And so we had some guest speakers. And so Michael was supposed to be here, but he had to cancel. Um, so I, just as he comes to mind, I would invite you to pray for his health. Um, just pray for him. I know he's feeling a little anxious about it. Um, and so if you could, I mean, to the point that he, like, a few months ago, had to use a walker. Like, I mean, this is, it's not just like, a, oh, he might have the flu. Um, so he's just hopeful that some of that stuff doesn't come back. And um, anyway, we're hoping that, you know, if, if he is able to kind of bounce back over the next few weeks, that maybe he can come back and fill the pulpit later in August um, so, that, so that we all don't lose out on the, the blessing and pleasure of, of hearing what the word that God has to say through him. But um, so it's, that's, that's why I'm up here preaching this morning. Uh, and I just want to invite you to, to keep him in prayer. Um, so Thursday night he calls, and so now I'm on I'm on the slate on the docket for for this morning. And uh, you know I, I would say it didn't take the Holy Spirit long to put something on my heart to share with you. It's something I've been contemplating. Um, I've been thinking, what does it mean for us to have communion with God? To draw near to God, right? The, the language of John chapter 15, it's this famous verse where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? That, that apart from me, you can bear no fruit. That there's this connection with Jesus that we ought to have. And so what does that mean that we should abide in him? Because I know myself, like growing up in the church off and on, um, abiding with Jesus often was dictated by like, what do I do? Right? Am I checking all the right items off of a list? And so I, I think that what, what I want to share, what my main point this morning for us to consider is this, that I think that we can move either towards Jesus or away from Jesus at any given moment in time. We can be drawing close to Jesus or we can be seeing some distance take place between us. And this isn't like a, a you know, unilateral direction, right? There's many different facets of our life that we have. And so there might be areas where we're drawing closer to Jesus and areas that we're not, that we're, we're moving away. But the truth, of the, the, the truth of the scriptures is that God desires relationship with us. God wants to commune with us. And so as a result, one of the primary goals of what it means to be a Christian is to move towards Jesus Christ to enter into that relationship. And so I think we need to be regularly evaluating those different facets of life and determine, right, have we shortened, have we neared that gap between Jesus or have we lengthened it between Jesus and ourselves? Now I'm going to put it to you in, in another way. Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch wrote a book called The Shaping of Things to Come and they created a framework. Uh, and so I'm, st I'm totally stealing this from them. This is not my original idea. Uh, but but they, they kind of create these two different frameworks that we can understand our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And so the, the two labels they put on it are what they call bounded set relationships and centered set relationships. Here's their metaphor. I found this really helpful. Let's say that you're a farmer. It's hard to think about here. We're in an urban setting. We don't have a lot of land. But let's just say you're a farmer. You own, you know, about three acres of land, and you've got all kinds of livestock. You've got cows. You've got sheep. You've got, I don't know, horses, whatever other kind of livestock you'd have. Now, it would be wise of you. It would be prudent if you had, you know, three-acre farm to, to draw, to, to erect a fence around the border of your property. Right? It, it, it keeps your livestock in. You know, I, I'm always, I mean, they've got good fences when I'm traveling back. I grew up in York, PA, when I'm traveling back on the turnpike. You know, you see all kinds of farms. You got cows and the sheep, and, you know, I'm surprised you never see any of them on the turnpike. But they've got good farms, because, or they, they've, you know, they, they've got those good fences to keep them in. It keeps them contained, and it keeps outside larger animals from entering into it. But this is a bounded set way of thinking. We create parameters, and this is, this is kind of what this means in the church. Bounded set thinking means we create parameters of what it means to be an insider and an outsider. We define what it means to belong or to be a stranger. And, and, and my experience with church is this is the most common way that we think about faith, is we draw a circumference right, a boundary, and we say, if you're inside that boundary, you're a Christian. If you're outside that boundary, you are not. Just that that's, off, that's often how I've experienced that. But let's keep this metaphor going. Let's say instead of owning three acres of land, you own 300 acres, right? It's probably not smart. You're going to, like, go broke if you try to build a fence around all 300 acres of your farm. Instead, what the farmer will often do is they'll dig wells, set up food troughs at various points in the property. Right? The purpose of the wells is to keep the animals close by. Right? The, the idea is that since food and water are essential to life, right, the animals have an instinct about this. They know where they can get their meal, and so they're not going to wander too far from those locations. Right? This is a centered set way of thinking. Now, I was trying to recalibrate this metaphor for an urban environment. Um, you know, our house, some of you have been to our house. It's just right down the street. We've got a fenced-in backyard. We've got a dog who's almost a year old. If it wasn't for that fence, he'd probably run away, right, because he just doesn't have any, any boundaries. So that's a bounded, and there are times that it's appropriate to have a bounded set way of thinking. We have a fence that keeps our dog in, keeps doesn't keep groundhogs and stuff out. I wish it did, but, you know, keeps other stuff out. But there's also plenty of, you know, these like semi-feral cats that live in, I, I don't know, maybe you guys have them in your communities too. They're not indoor cats. They're kind of outdoor cats. I don't know that they necessarily belong to anyone, but they are always hovering around the area because there's, you know, I, in my case, there's a woman a couple doors down that always is leaving food out for them, which is fine. I have no problem with this. But that cat, you're not going to see that cat down at Frick Park because it knows to stay close to this neighborhood where it's going to get the food each and every time. So what does this have to do with faith? Too often the church and our individual faith in Jesus has been limited by a boundary-set mentality. We think that as long as I'm checking those right items off the list, then we're good with God. Right? Yep, I prayed the sinner's prayer. 
didn't cheat on my ta taxes, check. Right? Didn't flip that person off when they cut me off on 376, check. Gave my tithe to the church, check. Right? We measure our faith by how well we're staying within these boundaries that we've erected. But I think that the lesson of faith is not just about checking the right boxes on our sheet of life, but are we staying near to the source? Are we staying near to that well of life, namely Jesus Christ? As we're going to see in a couple of minutes, we can be doing all of the right things in ministry, in life, and still be far from Jesus. In fact, I, I would argue People might disagree with me, and that's fine, but I would argue that in the economy of God's kingdom, right, God takes more pleasure out of the person who is a wreck, whose life has fallen apart because they've made some really boneheaded decisions, but that person who is kind of not anywhere near the kingdom of God, but kind of comes to themselves out of an act of desperation and just takes that first step towards God for sustenance. I think that God takes more joy and pleasure in that than, that than the person who's been in the church for 40 years, who's doing all the right things, but who is emotionally distant from Jesus Christ. Now, just a quick note about what I'm saying here. Right? I am not saying that there are no such thing as boundaries in faith. Right? For the last three to four months, I, I stood up here giving you, you know, the boundaries of the faith that were the Apostles' Creed. I'm not saying that holiness or obedience or right living or whatever you want to call it, I'm not saying that it's worthless. I'm merely saying that we should base our proximity to God less with our behaviors and more with our trajectory towards or away from him. Sorry about the noise. I know it keeps popping up there. All right, if you've got Bibles, let's open our Bibles for a little bit. We're going to look at two stories of two women who both utilized a centered set mindset when it came to faith in Jesus. And what, what I love about these stories is that they provide, they show us that there's no formula to faith. Right? In each story, a different woman is going to get that you know, proverbial gold star from Jesus. So first we're going to open to Luke chapter 10. If you want to follow along, you know. Uh, it's the story of Mary and Martha. You know, so open your Bibles. You've got Bible apps. You even just want to listen as I read it. That's fine, too. But we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. The Gospel of Luke says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So in this story, we see that there are two sisters, and Jesus is visiting their house. You know, Mary, she's lounging in the living room. She's, you know, hanging on every word that Jesus is speaking. While you have Martha, 
frenetic, frenetically working, right? She's trying to be a good host. So Mary here can represent kind of this contemplative, you know, uh, 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 appreciation of faith. Right? She is in close proximity to Jesus. She's not allowing busyness to distract her from the thing that she knows that is really important that's in front of her. Martha, on the other hand, is, is very busy, and I think many of us as Americans can probably better identify with Martha. She wants to make sure that Jesus enjoys his visit, right? that, that he has needs that need to be taken care of, that she's viewed as a good host. And so she works and works. And then she goes and sees her sister kind of hanging out, lounging around, and there's some bitterness that begins to rise up. Like, okay, yeah, we can, we can do that once we're done serving, but like, come on, Jesus, like, let, have her help me get this done so that we can get to, you know, the, the necessary evil so we can get to the important stuff. Right? There's, there's, there's much to be done. But we see that Jesus in the story gives Mary the gold star, that, that she has chosen the thing that is most important. He praises her for being still, right, for knowing that he's God. Martha, on the other hand, gets a gentle, gentle rebuke from Jesus. He starts, and Jesus names her issues. She's anxious. She's troubled. And that's a word I need to hear. I'm often anxious. I'm anxious and troubled right now. Listen to our sound system implode. She's putting her identity in being a good host, getting things done. Now, this is in my notes, but while, while this is happening, right? Like, I too often put my identity in. Am I, am I putting on my best foot forward as a pastor of this church? Are people having a good experience? That's not, that's not what Jesus is about. I mean, we, we want to worship. Sarah and I often talk about we want to pursue worship uh, in excellence. Undistracted excellence is what she said. This is very distracting. So we're not, we're not pursuing excellence right now. I get that. But my identity is not based upon how well our sound system works. And that wasn't for you. That was for me, just for the record. Martha is putting her identity in being a good host and getting things done. It's not that those things aren't important, but she's elevating them above the thing that is most important, communing, hanging out with Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lesson for us here. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't overburden yourself with so much busyness that you're not able to slow down in the presence of the Lord. We can busy ourselves with good and healthy activities and miss Jesus in the process. Martha's being a good host for Jesus. And I, I think you could argue, right, you know, if we want to kind of carry this to us, like Martha's doing ministry right now. She's serving. She's providing for the needs of Jesus. Her activities were for the Lord after all. And so even ministry, which can be a good thing, can keep us distracted from seeing Jesus in our midst. Remember a few minutes ago, I mentioned that you can check all the right boxes and be far from Jesus. And I think this is an example of that. Do you base your relationship with Jesus Christ upon what you are doing, especially what you're doing for him? Or do you base it off your nearness to him? If you read the Gospels, you know, you have kind of the, the arch nemesis of Jesus in the Gospels, the Pharisees. And this was his complaint against the Pharisees. They were so meticulous to the law. Jesus used the, the metaphor of you're straining out a gnat 
but you're swallowing a camel. It's, it's absurd, right? It's hyperbole. They're so meticulous that they didn't even realize when God himself incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ was literally in their midst. Their whole lives. I mean, the Pharisees were, were good dudes in, in general. Like, they did everything they could to live holy lives. They were doing it, sold themselves out, living radically for God, and missed God right there, con conversing with them regularly. They were so busy following all their rules for God that they missed God when he drew near to them. And I think the same is often true for us because we want a God we can control. We think that we can force God to approve of us. We think we can force him, get him to do good in our lives as long as we live a certain way, as long as we don't stray from that straight and narrow. But God's not a vending machine, right? It's not a formula. You can't just like put in the correct change and get what you want with God. That's not how he works. Ministry is important. Morality is important. But don't use those things as a substitute for the personal presence of God in your life. All right, let's go to the next story. And let's see kind of how the roles are flipped a little bit in it. So we're going to look at John chapter 11. Now I'm going to start reading in verse 17, but I want to catch you up to the, to the context of what's going on in this chapter. So Mary and Martha, they had a brother named Lazarus. And word gets to Jesus. Jesus is out. I think he's in Bethany at the time. Word gets out to Jesus that, or maybe Bethany is where they lived. I can't remember. I'm sorry. I'm frazzled. But you get the idea. The point is Jesus is not where Lazarus is. That's what's important. Word comes to Jesus that Lazarus is ill and is dying. And it's really intriguing because the text says that Jesus intentionally tarries. He hangs out for a couple more days, knowing full well what's going to happen, that Lazarus is going to die. So, you know, the, 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 the end of the story then we see, because this was all kind of not a test, but a lesson where, where Jesus goes and is, you know, calls Lazarus back from the dead, uh, brings him back to life again. And it, it, it's the event in the Gospel of John specifically. That's the only Gospel that the story is mentioned. And that's like the, the, John uses it as the final nail in the coffin for Jesus' death at the hands of the religious leaders. This was really the final thing. They're like, this is the last straw. We got to do something about this guy. So Lazarus is sick and dies. Lazarus raises from the dead. But what I want to focus on is what happens, because that's what the point of the story is. But what we're looking at this morning is what happens between those things. So picking up at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. 
All right, before I get in this, I just want to confirm. Can everybody on this side of the church still hear me? Okay, good. If I need to talk, speak louder, I will. So Lazarus has died by the point we pick up. And Mary and Martha are understandably a little overcome with grief. And when Martha heard that Jesus was approaching, verse 20 is very specific. Martha went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated at the house. Now, don't miss this in the story. Martha, in the midst of her grief for her brother's death, goes to Jesus. In the last story, Martha's the one, or excuse me, in the last story, Mary is the one who received the gold star. But I think here, Jesus would have given it to Martha. And here's why. Like, Martha, she knows her theology, right? She acknowledges the lordship of Jesus. She knows that death isn't the final word for Lazarus, that he's going to rise in the last day. She knows all the right doctrine. But in her grief, in all of her right understanding about God, she recognizes her need to go to the source, to go to Jesus. I don't want to read too much into the text, but I don't think it's too much to even consider if maybe there was some anger there when she approaches Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Like, we, we let you know this was coming. Why didn't you come? Right? There might have been some anger, but in all of the emotions that she is feeling, she's not processing them distant from the Lord, but she brings them to him. There's movement, trajectory. Now, on the other hand, Mary, who had been sitting attentively at the feet of Jesus, in this situation, she's not near to him. I think she's closed off herself a little bit to Jesus because of her grief and anger. She's trying to process everything that she's feeling, but she's cut off from the source right now. I want to read the, the two verses that, that come next, verses 28 and 29. So this is after Jesus has had this interaction with Martha. When she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary, when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. So Jesus, I, I think that this just, again, is an illustration of his grace. He knows that he is the source of life. And Mary needs Jesus. Mary needs that source right now in her grief. And Jesus doesn't allow her to stay distant. He summons her. Right? You know, Martha came of her own volition, was moving towards him. But Jesus calls Mary back to himself. And she's obedient. She falls down at Jesus' feet and she says basically the same thing that her sister just said. Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Grief was one of those things that tried to stop Mary. Tried to close her off from the source of hope. But in the end, faith endures. Jesus calls and she answers. Now, I want to try to bring this home for us. What I love about these two stories is that they show that there is not a formula to faith. What it means to draw close to Jesus is not monolithic. It doesn't happen the same way every time. In the first story, we saw Mary kind of in her contemplation soaking up every word of Jesus. But when it felt like the bottom fell out, of their lives. It was Martha who channeled her grief and moved towards Jesus. And so in our lives, we might see this, it, it, that we're moving towards Jesus in one area of life, but moving away in five others. You know, you might be, you might be drawn near to him, you know, on your daily commute, 
you're listening to K-Love every day and it's making it a worshipful experience for you. But, you know, when you get home, you're pursuing a, a romantic relationship outside of what God wants for you. You might be struggling to make ends meet and you're drawing near to Christ, trusting his provision, literally trusting for the daily bread that he brings. But when you walk through your office door, you're checking your faith at the door. You don't see how faith has anything to do with what your nine to five job might be. You may have seen God, God's power break the stranglehold of some form of addiction in your life. But you know what? You're, you're continuing to tear others down, gossiping about them, insulting them. I think it just shows that we, we aren't static creatures, that there's a dynamic nature to us, that we might be pursuing God in one area, but, but distant from him and others. Drawing near to God doesn't just mean that you read your Bible and that you pray and you listen to Caleb and give to charity and you stop swearing. I mean, I mean those things are, are, are good, can be good. But I think considering that as faith is, gets us back into that bounded set framework. All of those things can be drawing near to God, but it can also just be doing the right things and missing Jesus like we saw Martha doing in the first story. God doesn't just want a compartment of our life. He wants all of it. And so I want to invite you to consider, how are you moving towards Jesus in every facet of life? When tragedy strikes, when suffering comes, and in many ways, those are the easiest times to trust and move towards God. Like when you've got nothing else to rely on, You've, you've no choice but to trust in a higher power than yourself. I mean, if you, you know, to use the language of the 12 steps. Recognizing that you don't have control of, of, your, of, of your own intuition, your own faculties. I mean, I know in my life that there have been seasons where we've gone through some really painful stuff. We've gone through some, some real unpredictable seasons, seasons of life. And, and I've found the only place that I've really been able to find hope is the wellspring of God's presence. When you're anxious about something, you can't help but like pray and pray and pray, right? But what happens when God comes through for you? When that source of anxiety resolves, I wouldn't say resolves itself, but is resolved by God, then where's your faith? In many regards, the nature of our faith can most, be most clearly tested, not when things are going poorly, but when life is good. Do we still feel the need to be with God? When you need to be comforted and God is that ever-present comfort for you, that's wonderful. But what about whenever you're like, I'm, I'm feeling comforted by this other stuff. Do I, still, do I still need God's comfort? When I don't have a care in the world, do I see, still see God as the essential source to be drawing towards? So going back to these two frameworks that I started with, I believe that the Christian faith should be based upon a centered set framework. Jesus is that well, he is the feeding trough, he is our essential, the, the essentials that we need for life. We should be drawing near to the source of Jesus Christ. But the difficulty in life for us is that there are, especially in our day and age, there are a whole lot of other sources that we establish that are not Jesus. We've set up our own little feeding troughs at other places that we keep going back to for that sustenance. Any number, of, the Bible calls that language idols. We don't, we don't worship little statues of gods. 
That's, not, that's, that's what idolatry looked like in the Old Testament. But idolatry is really what are those things that we go to for our security, our identity, our significance that are not God. Right? If I just had a spouse, then I'd be valuable. If my Roth IRA hit this threshold, right, this dollar amount, then I'd feel comfortable. If I could just work a little harder and get that promotion, then I can be somebody and I can back off from work a bit. Right? We do it with all kinds of things. What kind of, how big my house is, what kind of car I drive, how well behaved my children are working, how well our sound system is working. You get the idea. We put all of these things as our sources for sustenance. I get my identity from that, and so I draw near to that, when instead we should be drawing towards the, the well that's not going to run dry, which is Jesus. Because those other sources are only going to disappoint us in the end. A spouse leaves. We hit a recession, and your, your, your investments tank a little bit. You get laid off from your job. Your physical health wanes. A, wanes. a, a, a friendship breaks apart. Whatever it might be. They're all going to disappoint in the end, and that well is going to run dry. There's a story in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Jesus is, is hanging out on a well, and there's a woman who approaches him at the well. She's of a different nationality than he is, which was kind of a no-no for the Hebrew people. She's a, a clearly different gender than he is, which again, there were some social cues there. The fact that she was out there at noon, so the Bible says it was the sixth hour, she was out there at noon in the heat of the day to draw water indicates that she had some kind of reputation in the town. She wanted to go and draw water when there was no one else there. So we see Jesus breaking by, by engaging her, by, by you know, because he asked her for, a, a, draw me some water to drink. So Jesus is breaking through these, these things, these man-made establishments. He breaks through that, that kind of ethnocentricity or racism. He's breaking through the sexism. He's breaking even through this, this barrier of morality that she has not been living the way that God would want her to live. And what Jesus offers her is not a set of guidelines. He doesn't say, here is, you know, point you know, one, subpoint A, B, and C. Point two, you know, he's not saying, do all of these things and then you can live. Instead, he offers her a drink of living water that comes from him. Jesus says this about the water. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so I want to encourage you all this morning. In an age where there are so many things vying for our attention and focus, make sure that you take time to slow down and inventory your thoughts, your desires, your emotions. Right? Take those different facets of our identity, who we are, and see how we can turn in each one of them our attention to Jesus Christ. Because God loves you. God wants to be in relationship with you. We have been given an invitation to commune and move towards Jesus, to move towards that wellspring of life. Of life. And so may we take time to figure out how we can move towards Jesus in each of these different areas of our lives. Join me in prayer. Lord, there are times that we are faithless. And as Paul has written, 
Even when we are faithless, you are faithful. Even whenever we fail to draw near to you, you often are closing that gap. But you invite us to take some measure of responsibility. Right? I've, the words come to mind from Paul in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. That while you work in us, Lord, may we participate in the work that you're doing with us. May we draw ourselves to the sustenance that comes from Jesus, that living water. And may we seek abundant life under your gaze, under your grace, in your blessings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.